This is the Product Management Leaders Podcast, in which you hear from some of the top PM leaders about their real-world strategies and tactics for building world-class products. It's sponsored by Vox Implant, the leading serverless communications platform and no-code drag-and-drop contact center solution. Vox Implant enables product leaders and developers to integrate communications into their products, such as embedding voice, video, SMS, in-app chat, and natural language processing. Join over 30,000 businesses trusting Vox Implant. Now, let's jump into the show. Hi there, it's your host, Grant Duncan. Today, I'm speaking with Tammy Hahn, Chief Product Officer at Groundswell. They provide a unique financial service, which allows companies to create personal foundations for its employees and match employee contributions straight from the payroll. She was previously the VP of Product Management at Cornerstone On Demand, managing a team of over 50 people, helping propel the company forward, being there over 10 years. She has a lot of engaging insights to share, so I'm excited to interview her today. Hey, Tammy, it's so great to have you on today. So can you start by sharing a little bit about your role and what company you're at? Sure, absolutely. Great to be on the show today, Grant. Um, So yeah, my name is Tammy Hahn. I am Chief Product Officer at a new startup uh, called Groundswell. And Groundswell sits on the intersection of fintech and philanthropy. And what we're trying to do is to democratize or decentralize philanthropy and make it accessible to everyone. We understand that not all of us can be the 0.1% and we can't necessarily all individually have have the social impact of a Bill Gates or a uh, Warren Buffett or a Rockefeller, but together we can create a groundswell of change. Uh, So reimagining the way that people give um, and invest for social impact. That sounds like a really fun company to work at. Yeah, (laughs) I know so many people want to work, have their work be meaningful and have a social impact. And so Sounds like you're on the front lines of that. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. And could you give a brief background of your experience before then as well so people can understand your journey to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my degree was in computer science. So I actually started out as a developer um, and quickly realized in six to 12 months that I didn't want to be a developer. I didn't want to be the one taking requirements and executing. I wanted to be the one giving requirements and determining what we should build. Uh, So I switched over to product management, although back then, this was 2004, product management was still in its infancy. So at the company that I was at, which was Barclays Global Investors at that time, um, there wasn't such a role. It was basically a created role by me. And it was because I was a developer and we were working with um, our internal customer, which was the traders who was trading on this electronic platform. Um, And they would give us requirements and then we would build it and they would say, no, this isn't what exactly what I wanted. And go back to the drawing board, do this again and again and again. And about a year later, we finally get something that was useful to them. So I thought there must be a better way to do this. So I actually created the product management role there at Barclays. Um, And then I decided that it rained too much in San Francisco. Um, It was March of 2008. It rained the entire month. And I moved back to LA, which is where I'm originally from, where I went 
through many iterations of what it is that I wanted to do. I worked at a uh, PR firm. I worked in advertising. I worked at a comedy club, um, doing all sorts of different things, uh, which then led me to my destination at Cornerstone On Demand, which is a human capital management software company um, that's based out of uh, Santa Monica in Los Angeles. When I joined Cornerstone, it was about 40 million in revenue, about six product managers, and we were all reporting directly to the CEO. We were selling about five different product lines. And then fast forward the following year, we IPO'd and then spent the next 10 years there where we took the company from the original 40 million to 850 million. That team of six became a team of over a hundred globally, which included product managers and designers. Um, And the five product SKUs turned into, I think, 28 or 29 different product SKUs by the time that I, I left that we were selling independently. So crazy, crazy amount of growth, uh, process, team, and technologies that we used. Wow. That must have been quite an experience to to be on that journey there. Yeah. So it sounds like um, you've kind of been at that that time where maybe you're taking something from one or 10 to 100. And now it sounds like you're maybe more in the zero to one scale uh, with the early stage startup. Can you share how you think about those differently? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I took it for granted <laughs> um, at Cornerstone going from one or 10 to 100, um, always having customers that were lined up that would readily give us feedback, be beta customers, test out the product before we went and rolled it out. And um, I think that's a key difference in going zero to one. You just, you've, you've got connections and you've got your network, but you're pretty much begging people that aren't already paying and asking for something to go and validate <laughs> an idea um, and then potentially rolling it out to uh, their users if you're in a B2B space like we are. Um And so getting those early testers is really, really hard in a zero to one versus a one to 100. Um, Another thing is at Cornerstone, because we were such such a large team over a hundred, people could be specialized and go really, really deep in their area of expertise. You know, we had a separate research team, a separate UX team, a separate UI team. And yeah, that added to a lot of complexities and handoffs, like a giant game of telephone where you're doing a lot of handoffs. (laughs) But at the same time, like you just develop such expertise in your area and you were just a subject matter expert and you could go super, super deep in something. Whereas in a zero to one case, you're much more of a generalist, um, which is fascinating to me as a product leader or product manager at heart, just really uh, trying to understand what other people do in their roles and their pain points and what they do day to day. Like I have definitely newfound respect for account executives and uh, business development representatives trying to like hustle and get your first customers, just all of the, all of the things to make a company and a product successful. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Um, So how do you think about scaling your team at Groundswell in the future? Um, I don't know if you have people today, but if not, how how do you think about hiring? Who will be some of the the first um, uh, key characteristics for your early hires? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, what I'm looking for are the people that can flex, right? That are these generalists um, Mm. that aren't afraid to go high level and get into the nitty gritty. Um, There is no product yet. So it's, it's, you don't even have metrics to fall back on to have a hypothesis in terms of, you know, what is going to optimize a certain flow. The flow doesn't even exist. (laughs) So it's almost like you have to pick somebody that has the notion of getting deep into data analytics later, but also has enough confidence and intuition to like do those first flows to even see um, what what usage patterns come back as, what qualitative feedback comes back as, um, and somebody who's willing to to operate without a little bit of data and sort of operate in that uh, space of like relatively unknown and be decisive. Yeah, that makes sense. What metrics do you look at most often? Yeah, so again, as I mentioned at Groundswell, it's... Um, we're still in design definition phase. So, I mean, early days, again, you're just making hypotheses. So I definitely have a North Star metric defined. So what is that one key metric that indicates that your users and your customers are finding value in your product? Um, And then I've got hypotheses about sub KPIs, right? What are other indicators of success in each part of the funnel? Again, it's just a hypothesis right now in terms of what is our core flow and what value do we add to our end users and to our customers. But I think it's super important to define those very early on, especially in each of the steps of the funnel. So I use the growth framework, the pirate framework R, right? So acquisition, activation, retention, referral, and revenue. So for each of those, I've defined the areas of the product in which it would indicate uh, that a user is within each of those funnel steps. Um, And that just serves as a starting point to understand, like, we know initially for a funding round that uh, investors really care about the number of users that are on your platform. So I'm going to really focus in on that top of the funnel of acquisition and activation, right? So really understanding what metrics are going to drive those. And for us, it's total number of user accounts. And then activation would be total number of users who have made a donation or a contribution into their personal foundation. So those are key metrics that I'm I'm hoping to observe. Now, when you look at a product like Cornerstone, there's many different modules of functionality that they provide. So we actually had different North Star metrics for each of those product lines, even if we did bundle all of those things together. And they were much more tied to business metrics as well. Like what does uh, retention look like in an overall customer perspective? What does uh, customer lifetime value look like from an overall customer perspective? So very much more tied to the metrics that matter to the business. Whereas in the groundswell side of the house, it's much more tied to like, can we get adoption and users picking up the system? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense how there's a a difference there. Um, And that's, that's really cool that in the past, you've even had it by product or product line. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so for someone with your kind of experience level, how do you find new jobs? And I'm not saying you're looking for a new job right now, but I think <laughs> you know people are curious about this kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I at a product leadership level, I mean, there's just 
at any sort of leadership level, there are far fewer jobs and opportunities than a individual contributor. You know, there's 10 individual contributors at any given company, but there's only one like leadership position, right? So it's not like you can just go to any job board and hope that you can find a VP level position or a chief product officer or SVP or what have you at a leadership scale, right? So it's, it's almost like you have to network. You have to know people who are either in the, in the recruitment space, or you have to know product leaders at other companies who have been reached out to by companies that they don't necessarily want to look, uh, work for, but they, <laughs> they find very, very interesting. And I did that, you know, I made it a point to network with people in the venture capital space, their recruiting teams. I make sure to keep up all of my relationships with the big tech recruiting firms, Diversa, Riviera are some ones that come to mind. And I make sure that those relationships are upheld, even in a passive state, right? Like maybe I'm not interested in looking for an opportunity now, but that doesn't mean that I might not be interested five years from now or six, seven, eight years from now, or maybe um, some big opportunity comes up in a space where I'm super passionate about. And that's what happened with Groundswell, right? Like Mm. I was super passionate about making social impact in this world and doing good for the world and not just helping rich people get richer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's great that it worked out for you in this way. Yeah. So if you were to think about uh, a pie chart of your time on a day or a week, what does that look like? Yeah. So at Groundswell, it's quite different than what it was at Cornerstone for sure. So at Cornerstone, I would say I spent a lot of time in meetings, right? So managing, I didn't directly manage these hundred people, but there were a hundred people in the product organization. There was a lot of time that was spent on facilitating those conversations, one-on-ones, alignment meetings, making sure that all the time zones were talking to each other in an asynchronous fashion, um, especially post-pandemic. It was just, there was a lot, a lot of meetings. And I found very little quiet time in terms of actually getting uh, strategic work done. It was much more almost like project management at that level. So that was what my day-to-day looked like at Cornerstone. At Groundswell, it is quite different being the sole product person today, although hiring, I'm doing every aspect there is, you know, I'm, I'm doing the discovery. I'm doing, I'm working with the design team on creating designs. I'm running the experiments and testing it out with potential users. I'm also working with the engineering team and we didn't, we didn't have a CTO until pretty recently. Um, so I was doing sort of the uh, mentoring of the engineers that we did have uh, to work on POCs and to uh, just test out tech feasibility. Again, my tech background allows me to be able to do those things. I can read the API documentation. I can provide mm-hmm. guidance at a very tactical level. Uh, so I find myself really shifting a lot in the day-to-day, going from tactical to strategic um, and back again. Yeah, it sounds like it's probably fun to to get back into the the heart of it and execution and really like putting your product management skills to the test in a, maybe a more hands-on way. That's oh, cool. 
Definitely. Yes. I mean, it'd been quite some time since I had written my own user stories, my own, you know, PRD or any of those things. So sure. that was a little bit rusty. It was definitely like, oh, get this dust off of me and <laughs> uh, put pen to paper on some of these things. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So we had a listener uh, ask a question um, that they were curious to hear your thoughts on. Uh, Anshul asked, for products, how do you determine when to keep them as is or um, when do you need to pivot or in some cases, when do you need to kill it altogether? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think I would start with looking at the metrics, right? Is there just like the the product growth uh, graph that you you we all know and love sort of it peaks at a certain point then sort of declines and that's when you know you need to uh, deprecate said product so I would really try to understand the metrics what does growth look like from a usage adoption perspective as well as from a business perspective right like uh, remember product is a leading indicator right and you sell assuming it's a b2b sort of product um, that's a lagging indicator. Revenue is a lagging indicator, right? So you right. would want to understand what are some predictions that you know that you're, you're heading towards that peak. Um, it's not growth from a business metric standpoint. It's growth or adoption and usage from your product standpoint. So you want to key in on those KPIs that might be indicators that people are starting to drop off from a retention perspective or new users adopting or referring is starting to drop off. Um, But you still might see that continuous growth from a sales perspective. Now, when those numbers do start to like, you're used to be growing, you know, 50% month over month. And now you're only seeing, you know, 20%, 10%. You're starting to see that little bit of a dip um, from a product usage standpoint. Then you might look at the sales metric standpoint and still see that that still seems to be growing at 30% month over month and continuing to grow. In which case I would, I would recommend putting that into a maintenance mode, right? And doing small optimizations that your customers are asking for. Now, now, when that growth sort of stagnates from a sales perspective, that's sort of when you need to be evaluating, like, what are my costs for even maintaining this product, All right? So what what does customer support look like, the operational costs, what, how much time is your engineering team spending on defects, things of that nature, right? To understand, okay, might this product be nearing end of life? Do we want to redesign, build a new product that sort of still serves this pain point or is qualitatively your customer base sort of saying, you know, we stopped using this because we found a different approach or this is no longer an issue. You know, we are now all remote as an example. So we no longer use this feature in this product that helps us do things in office as another example, right? And at which case you would determine, okay, now the cost of operating this particular product is outweighing the future profit. So understanding that your engineering team has needs to have focused time on innovation, that is a good time to be putting a product to rest. Yeah, those are hard decisions, but I think that's a great framework to help people think about some of the factors and metrics to consider. Yeah, yeah. Can you share about how you think about prioritization and trade-off decisions? 
Yeah. So prioritization is always hard. Um, every stakeholder is always demanding something um, from a product manager. It's really, really hard. Um, and I think it's all about starting out with the right objectives up front, right? So I have a saying that um, the way that I operate as a leader is align on your objective collaborate on the strategy, and then execute the tactics. So it has to be really clear coming from the business perspective, what is our objective as a business? Is it to grow? Is it to retain our customer base? Is it is it something else? Is it to just improve our brands? And then, you know, what is the strategy for that, right? If it's to grow, are we going to penetrate a new market, go into a new vertical, expand our product offering? And that might be tied very closely to your sales goals, right? We're going to do this by increasing our existing customer base, their lifetime value by adding on new products that are tangential, that are, that are a new price point, right? Or it could be like, new customers altogether again by penetrating a new geography or a new vertical. And that sort of indicates to a product person, okay, well, based upon these objectives and goals and how we're going to measure success as a business, what might we prioritize um, and what doesn't fit along that, right? So if you're trying to penetrate into the EMEA region, as an example, right, and you get somebody in the U.S. on the federal side saying, hey, we need to add in these compliance features for our federal customers or to for us to sell into our federal base, you can point back to the business objectives and strategy to say, hey, like that doesn't seem aligned with, you know, what our objectives are. Now, that doesn't mean ignore your existing customer base. If you've got, you know, 10 millions or millions of dollars like on the line of your existing customer base who are really upset because, you know, the core workflow that they bought or the core value proposition that they hope to achieve is not being met. Like that's something really to take into consideration and sort of providing that data points, uh, that data point to your leader, to your executives, whomever, um, and, and make a recommendation on where you're going to spend your time. Yeah. Great points. So in that zero to one world, Mm -hmm. how do you know when you have product market fit? (laughs) I know it's such a loosey goosey term, um, product market fit. What does that even mean? How do you put like dollars around that? Is it when you have 10 paying customers, 50 paying customers, you know, five white papers or testimonials that they find value in your product? So I think that's a little bit fluffy. I think it's 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 hard to say um, from a personal standpoint. I do believe that venture firms have have narrowed in on that definition, right? You need to have two million in revenue and you know a certain number of users and certain percentage of growth um, year over year, et cetera. Um, but I think to me, it's it's like going zero to one. It's like, how do you continue to expand out your target audience and continue to have raving fans as you expand out? So in the zero to one phase, it's really, really important to have focus on who is your target audience in that initial rollout, right? Let's call it a alpha rollout. I hate the word MVP because everybody just simplifies everything into this like MVP word. So forget (laughs) it. There's milestones leading up to whatever is considered MVP, which to me is like, okay, great. You've launched the product and now there are people lining up to buy it, I guess. That's what MVP means. Um, (laughs) But there's all these milestones that lead up to that. So you might say milestone one, we are going to target just 
friends and family and they look like this type of user with this type of behavior, right? And you make them raving fans before you expand out your target audience and you say, okay, great. Now we're going to bring in like people that are external to our network, maybe two degrees removed, but they must have these characteristics. And for us, it's, you know, people that already give today or already philanthropic. We're not trying to completely change somebody's behavior that isn't already giving today, right? That sort of thing. And as you continue to expand that audience, when do you actually have not just a a big enough sampling size, let's call it like a hundred users, but but when do you have a big enough target segment where you feel like you have good enough representation? Let's say 80% of those users are like, using the product, finding value, you've got the testimonials and they're actively using on a, whatever your metric is daily, weekly, monthly, um, for us, it's monthly, um, on, on that sort of basis and who are willing to refer you. So really like across that growth metric standpoint, you've got 80% advocates within that target market. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things you're kind of hinting at there is being able to define well your persona or your ICP. That's right. Um, how, how do you go about doing that, in, especially in that zero to one early stage when maybe you don't have thousands of customers to do analysis on or research with? Yeah, absolutely. So I went through that painstaking process <laughs> over the last several months. Um, yeah. And I would say that is that has been quite difficult because initially early on, you, most companies don't actually start the, I'm going to call it the quote unquote, the right way where you're solving a particular problem and you're not opinionated about the solution. Typically founders come in if they're not from a product background, they're opinionated on their solution and it's unclear what problem they're trying to solve. Right. So I would say almost like initially you're just, you're validating what are the problems. So you talk, you talk to like, who are, who are the stakeholders? Who are the like hypothetical um, customers and user personas, and you just go and you try to understand their problems. Then you try to narrow in because you've got to classify yourself what groupings each of these personas fall into. Maybe it's for us, you know, we consider white collar versus blue collar. We consider generational gaps. We consider things like, do you come from an SMB mid-market or enterprise size company as an example, right? And you start to categorize each of these uh, stakeholders that you're talking to, potential customers or potential users, and you're trying to map their problems, right? Like you're trying to see, okay, what problem applies across the board versus like what's niche to every single individual like grouping. Then based upon that grouping, like you want to classify like highlighting green, yellow, whatever it is, and everything that applies across the board. And you want to hit on those first. Then you want to identify like the smallest grouping of requirements, right? From a product standpoint, that's like the easiest to roll out. We have to build the least amount of things. And you want to pinpoint those and try to build those out as much as possible. Yeah, it's a helpful framework. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so for someone who, let's say, is in product management now, maybe they're a senior PM or something, what would you suggest as steps to take for them to be on a path to become a VP or SVP or chief product officer one day? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's 
there's two things. Well, the first thing that you should consider is whether or not you want to be a product leader leading people or you want to be a product leader like who's really great at product management. So the full life cycle of actually executing a product from discovery to uh, design through execution and rollout and deprecation, right? Because not everyone is set up to be a great people leader. And I would say as you move up the path of people leader, um, especially in a larger organization, the further away you move from actual like product management, right? So as I was explaining earlier at Cornerstone, I spent a lot of time managing stakeholders and uh, being that communication conduit, making sure that everybody was aligned to objectives and we're like heading down that path towards meeting those objectives versus like getting to go and ideate in a room, right? Like I... I participated in some design sprints, but I really wasn't like super active because I was just too far away from the actual things that were happening in the product to really understand. So again, if you want to go up that people leader path, it's almost more about coaching and communication and project management, right? It's definitely like how are you helping the next generation of product managers like take that next step? Um, How do you tactically execute in a sustainable, scalable way for the company? And then how do you quickly adapt your processes like as the objectives of the company and the growth phase of the company change? So further away from product, which is a little bit sad for me, versus somebody who wants to get just really, really skilled at discovery and going deep into discovery. And maybe you become a researcher um, or an R&D team or somebody that wants to go a little bit wider across the product management lifecycle altogether. I think there's, there's paths for both types of people. And I think it really like figuring that out early is really, really important uh, to take that next step. Mm. So let's say to answer, to go full circle back, let's say you do decide you want to become a people leader. You want to go climb that ladder, become VP or CPO one day. Uh, I think the best way to do that is to get mentoring opportunities as quickly as possible, right? It doesn't even have to be um, at the company, whether you reach out to people on LinkedIn or let yourself be open. I think there's a setting on LinkedIn that allows you to be open to mentoring people, starting to write, you know, articles on Medium and providing your guidance and your experience on how to be a great product manager are are super important steps that you can take uh, that demonstrate like people leadership qualities that your manager might be looking for to say like, oh, you're ready to take this next step. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. I would add also that I think company size can play a part in this as well. Um, I mean, even as you've shared about your experience, the types of opportunities available in large companies is going to look different than small company for people management or even the type of work you're doing if you're going to be more end-to-end or more specialized. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What sources or communities do you use to continue learning? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of books that I highly recommend every single product manager read, if they haven't already, um, Inspired by Marty Kagan and uh, Hooked by Nara Yall. 
But otherwise, in terms of community perspective, I'm very much actively reading Medium all the time, um, following product management. LinkedIn is also a great resource where you can follow like really great product leaders and their content is just stellar on points. Some some leaders that I follow, uh, Gibson Biddle, who used to be head of product at Netflix and then at Chegg, who's got great content that he posts on LinkedIn. You can also, I think you can also follow him on Substack and on uh, Medium. So those are great channels. And I would say start adding yourself to uh, these Slack communities. There's Product Collective, there's UX and UI Design Collective. There's just, there's all these new resources popping up that you can participate as a in, in as a community um, that have been super helpful because getting a lens outside of your own company and what you know is actually really, really important to developing your career as a product manager because what works for you in one place probably or may not work for you at another place. And they might run completely differently as a product organization somewhere else. So expanding your knowledge of how other companies work uh, is is very, very useful. Yeah, that's a great point. And sometimes things are transferable. Other times, like you're saying, you're going to have to maybe take away the principles and apply them in some kind of new setting. Yeah, that's right. Um, so how do you recommend PMs deal with failure? Yeah, so great question. Um, first of all, I I don't I don't like to call failure failure. <laughs> it's more like a misstep. Um, so to me, like take away product management and like real life, right? When you learned how to ride a bike, you fell off before you actually were able to ride the bike, unless you were. I don't, I don't know, some bike riding genius when you were a child. Um, but it's a misstep. It's it's what did you learn from that misstep more so about, about the failure itself, right? So it's a learning process. I only consider it a failure really if you fail to learn and you repeat that mistake over and over and over again. So I would say, hey, when you when you approach quote unquote failure or a misstep, be really intentional about writing down and keeping a track of what it is that you learned and how might you not make that same mistake again in the future. I highly recommend uh, doing pre-mortem meetings and sort of like understanding upfront, like what are all the things that can go wrong and determining like what are the things that you're going to address in terms of like what's plan B um, versus like this is a known risk. Can we accept it? Hmm. Yeah, I love that pre-mortem idea. I don't think a lot of people are doing that, but that could be super valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a great tool. Um, it also like it, it gives an avenue for the people that tend to err towards like being prepared. Like I'm, I'm definitely of a personality type where I like to be prepared. I'd like to create plans for everything in a plan A and a plan B. And when <laughs> I, I quote Mike Tyson a lot, but it's like, um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> And so I'm like, well, I have a plan for getting punched in the face too. What happens then? So the premortem really gives you a meeting, a space to feel safe and not being called the negative Nancy or the pessimist, right? And just bringing your concerns all out on the table. And it's not, again, it's not about saying like, we shouldn't do this because of here are all the reasons that we can fail. It's more about being prepared for the things that can go wrong and even just awareness of things uh, to look out for. Yeah, 
Yeah, great points. How do you think about presenting to the board of directors? Do you have any tips for people? <laughs> Breathe. Um, <laughs> so um, I was actually quite fortunate at Cornerstone that uh, one of the key capabilities that our CEO uh, set us up with was he expected every product manager to be amazing presenters. And he gave us a lot of opportunities to be great presenters, uh, giving us coaching and development, like hiring an external party to come and coach us and then giving us the opportunity at events, right? Like HR tech was a big event for um, all human human capital management type of companies, we would get to speak there. We also had customer conferences that we held twice a year. We would speak there. And these were audiences of, you know, anywhere between 50 to 2000 people. So I really, I feel very blessed in getting thrown into the fire early on in terms of losing my nerves, like uh, presenting to large audiences. So I, I don't, I don't get the nerves that some might get in terms of presenting to a board. And I think the advice applies to anything. It's like really recognizing your audience. Like what is it that they care about? Not what you care about selling them or what metrics you care about sharing. Like what do they care about? And tailoring your presentation, your conversation dialogue around those things. Like this is not about you presenter. This is about them and what they want to hear. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that probably doesn't mean just making a, a slide full of text. <laughs> oh, definitely yeah. not. Definitely always have a narrative, always have a story to tell. Like don't again feature, feature, feature. Don't nobody nobody wants to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, totally. What's one of the hardest product decisions you've had to make? So many. <laughs> but yeah, I bet. um yeah, so I think your question about prioritization and how it aligns with like when do you know to continue to invest or put into maintenance or to deprecate, like those are always the hardest decisions because you're never going to make everyone happy and you just have to be okay with that. Number yeah. 1. Like that example that I gave about, you know, telling somebody in the federal space that you're not going to build their enhancement for their for their uh, sales reps, but you're going to instead invest in EMEA because that's what the business goal is. Like you have to recognize you're still saying no to somebody whose livelihood and whose own team has like a quota to hit and things to do. Right. So any decision you make um, affects a team of people who have a different set of goals and objectives. And so being a product manager and being a product leader is is heavy, right? Because <laughs> you got to be okay with that. And you have to really strongly have conviction that the decision you're making is what is best for the business as well as for your customers and users, right? You're, you're really sitting in the middle of, of that trifecta there. And lastly, of course, your, t- your technology team is actually capable of, of building a product that is performant, reliable, and scalable for that particular solution. Um, so yeah, I would say like those key prioritization decisions to not build something big in favor to do something else and be focused in that is the hard, will always be your hardest decisions. Um, you're essentially saying we can't do everything well, so we're going to pick, you know, what are the top two or five things that we're going to knock out of the ballpark so that we can move things forward across those three different stakeholders. Yeah, those are definitely tough decisions. 
How, how do you think about building in customer experience and customer engagement into your products? Yeah. So over the, I've been blessed to be in product for such a long time, but early days, like we just didn't have the tool sets that are available now, but you know, now there's like new tools like user leap that you can embed surveys into. You've got full story to like fully understand like how users are using your product. You've got product analytics tools to understand, you know, what is actually happening in the system. You've got user testing, user interviews to go get qualitative feedback about why those things are happening. Um, there's just a new tech stack out there that makes it makes it totally achievable for a product person to understand not only a what is happening, which is your quantitative data of how people are actually interacting with the system, and then b like get, doing that qualitative research to understand why users are behaving that way, and then optimizing around that, right? So. There's so many different ways now in which you can achieve and really understand how to optimize for your users and even understanding who those users are. And again, just like always going back to like, what is it that you're solving for that user base and really understanding who those, who those people are. Yeah, great points. If you were to have any parting advice, uh, let's say for an aspiring PM leader, uh, what would that be? <laughs> There's so many things that I want to say. Um, again, I think it goes back to standing your ground um, and having the data to back you up on why you're choosing to make the choices that you make. I think the worst thing that you can do is to be too agreeable for the sake of being agreeable and getting people to like your decisions. Um, again, just you have to be okay with not everybody's going to like your decision, um, but you need to have the conviction and data to back up why you're making those choices, those very hard choices to be able to focus. Focus is definitely, I think, the downfall to to great products. Um, it's when you get to the point where you're just like, your breath is way too large and you're just trying to do too many things that don't align, again, to like an outcome for the business or for your users. So just... Get your evidence, have conviction on what you want to focus on, and stick to your guns. Great final points. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Tammy. Really appreciate the time. I think you've shared a lot of uh, great insights. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. And thanks to our sponsor, Vox Implant, as well. If you're looking into how to improve your communication and customer engagement, check them out. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and tell your friends so that others can find it more easily. Have a great day and feel free to reach out to me, Grant Duncan, if you have any questions you want asked in our next episode.